Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Rabbi yassir wa a'in ya kareem, wa aftah bil haqqi indaka al-fattahu al-alim. So uh, if there's been any unifying uh, thread in this Cook's tour of some very uh, far-flung human corners of the history of this uh, gigantic, diverse ummah, I guess it has been that uh, this principle of leadership, a very modern, really un-Islamic category, uh, is something that uh, uh, can be applied, but only indirectly to certain people who, uh, from a secular optic, would be regarded as leaders, leaders of jihad, leaders of thought, leaders of uh, iftah, uh, leaders of uh, their own way within Islam, the kind of uh, William Williamson approach. We've seen uh, a number of stormy petrols. Is there a, a unifying principle? Well, I think that as we began, we should end by recognizing that the modern conception of leadership uh, is incompatible with the Islamic view simply because it excludes the possibility of tawfiq and divine agency. The prophetic model itself is not a model of leadership in the sense that would make sense, say, to the Judge Business School or the Palace of Westminster, because uh, his leadership, alayhi salatu wasalam, is a leadership that was thrust upon him. When it began, his recourse was to his wife and to sheltering beneath a cloth. He didn't make a large inaugural address, uh, lapping up the flash photography, um, he was reluctant. He did not wish for this uh, responsibility. And we saw the famous uh, uh, sound hadith in which he says, alayhi salatu wasalam, la tas'alu imara, do not ask for leadership. Isn't our life nowadays predicated on filling in forms and asking for promotion and nagging our boss and looking for a better job? But how does that cohere at all with that very absolute prophetic uh, uh, commandment. And in their varied ways, we have seen that the leadership paradigms that we have mapped out in the history of Islam are people whose success consists in the fact that they weren't really interested in glory. It just kind of happened as a side effect of their journey, but it was not their destination. Hopefully that's been clear, but of course so many others, thousands, thousands of other individual leaders in the history of this ummah, there's whole centuries and whole cultural realms that we haven't yet uh, uh, broached, um, would make this clear that uh, the one is a model of leadership through ego, therionic leadership we might say, the only paradigm recognised now. And the other is the leadership that comes about when that is subjugated and the nafs is overcome as the false self, which means really negating modern ideas of individualism, and the true self, which is the ruh, deeply buried beneath layers of uh, rubbish in the hearts of most of us nowadays, is activated and whether that person wills it or not carries that person up. So it's a defiance of gravity. It is the influence of heaven, as it were, melting the dew 
the dew doesn't get the choice that it moves upwards because of the power of what is happening and its own uh, inherent uh, nature. So this, of course, presents us moderns, those who are flying desks in a modern uh, company or university or parliament with uh, a real paradox. What is uh, the legitimacy of what we take to be our natural right, wanting to see our hard work rewarded and to slither up the greasy pole um, competing with others. Uh, this doesn't seem to be the Islamic model at all, ever. This kind of Darwinian paradigm which prevails in modern capitalism is not something that we respect. Hmm? It's not that there mustn't be people who lead, because the Hadith goes on to say, because if you are given it without asking for it, you will be given success in it. But if you achieve it through asking for it, it will be given authority over you. <clears throat> in other words, you'll be subject to its rules and its competitive dog-eat-dog -dog mindset. The spiritual hardening, the kingship of the ego will inevitably eat you alive. And you can see that as power corrupts, not just in politics, but in any other aspect of life. And we see it in the Brexit negotiations, a ridiculous circus of damaged, uh, <coughs> naked, naked egos squabbling with one another. We see it with people who are swallowing their own political convictions for the sake of promises of cabinet positions under Hunt or Johnson. And it's very unedifying. It's the endless human zoo of the ego, the animalistic. It's kind of naked and obvious and unedifying and ominous, of course, because those are not people who are going to be given tawfiq from heaven. So our paradigm is really different, as we've seen, and we need somehow at least to be aware of that as we move through the world, that ours is a radical, discordant, dissident perspective, as it has to be, because we believe strongly in the divine omnipotence, something <coughs> which doesn't occur to most authors of CVs or readers of CVs. It's, it's that alien principle that nonetheless, looking at the history of the Ummah, is that which makes things happen. So we began with that uh, disorienting thought, maybe even that humbling thought. Maybe it even coincides with our sense that however well laid our plans may be, they tend to go astray. Perhaps we have the wisdom to recognize that it is Allah's plans alone which are an accurate map of the future and our own are just vain and incompetent, usually egotistic dreamings. Maybe as we go through life we have the humility and the wisdom to witness that, maybe through painful setbacks. But uh, in the context of our own sense of how we do things in this current social matrix where everything is Darwinian, dog-eat-dog, dog, uh, devil-take-the-hindmost, the American dream, means that there are some people who don't make it to the top and live a nightmare, end up in prison or as members of a despised ghetto community for whom there is very little uh, mobility. There isn't a dream without the nightmare. And uh, with the growth of what they call the precariat in modern Britain, we're seeing that as well. Lots of people for whom this hugely competitive and heartless animalistic 
law of the jungle view of how leadership is achieved, are the left behind and end up in situations of, of considerable personal and familial and economic distress. And that uh, gulf is widening all the time, partly because of this deficient and Darwinian and ultimately heartless vision of how to get to the top, how to assume positions of amana and responsibility. Uh, it's an ugly process, but uh, because it releases our lowest, uh, most uh, avid energies, uh, has created a civilization that is of enormous, perhaps unprecedented power, but its energy source is the lower part of us, not the higher. And we will see what its long-term outcomes might be. In any case, uh, what I want to do today is to look at somebody who is kind of uh, uh, a paradigm for somebody who actually abandoned the slippery pole, seeing it for what it is, and decided to uh, turn within. And of course, this has happened to very many people in the history of the Ummah, but in a sense, in his life, it becomes the defining act of his uh, Resume. This, of course, is Hujat al-Islam al-Ghazali, of whose life we remember particularly his crisis, his disillusionment, uh, and his climbing down from the pole. He'd already reached the top in order to go off in uh, humble, dervish-like poverty, um, taking the hippie trail, uh, wandering off, looking for truth, doing all of those uh, prophetic but... Uh, not leadership-like things. So I want to close this series. Who knows, if there's good feedback, we might look at some more people next year because it's quite a good way of getting into certain principles in religion by seeing how they have uh, interacted with and been uh, bodied forth in actual human biodata. It's an accessible way of looking at principles. But in the case of Imam al-Ghazali, what I want to do is not just go over the details of his life again, because you've seen the movie and no doubt this is uh, familiar already, but rather to see uh, what we might learn if we are to address this uh, apparent crisis uh, that afflicts the soul whenever we uh, seek to better ourselves, whenever we write that CV I'm a great team player and I really enjoy new challenges and these are my hobbies and they're all the same because the system tends to produce what sociologists call a monoculture because it's a mass culture, everything ends up being the same and you can download a standard CV from the internet with all of those stupid phrases and in a sense you have to do that. You can't say, actually I'm not a good team player and I get tired easily. Um, and I have unusual ideas and I rock the boat and a lot of people don't like me to, you can't do that. There's no way in which ikhlas, sincerity, a genuine self-portrayal required religiously. Remember, you're not allowed to sell a house in Islam unless you indicate all of its defects to the buyer. We're quite, quite narrow in our moralism. So this economic leadership model, which of course infects and corrupts politics as well, um, of people just making things up and making promises and flattering themselves uh, is something uh, which we view with very considerable disquiet and distaste. But then, hey, how do you write a CV if you need a job? 
There are certain practical considerations. We know what our ideals are. They are the traditional ideals of sacred humanity, shared by people in other traditions as well. Uh, but how do we live by them in a world that is uh, fanatically materialistic? Well, let's uh, try and address this by taking a step back uh, and looking at what and where we are as believers, as people who are still interested in what is behind the surface of things, uh, at this particular, in many ways, unsettled and extreme point of human history. Just about everything's unsettled, even the natural world is unsettled, which is really new for human beings. Uh, it's interesting uh, for those who are considering their identity as minorities in the middle of this sort of mammon civilization uh, to reflect on what has been done to them. Hmm? To what extent are we actually in continuity with the sacred past and to what extent are we just a kind of mildly Islamic or eccentric version of the mainstream Western machine? We're thinking about that. Uh, what, where really are our roots? Well, recently I went for the first time to the new Bukhari galleries at the British Museum. Uh, and this is the heart of the Islamic art uh, displays at the British Museum, two big rooms which, thanks to a Malaysian donor family, have been handed over to the uh, presentation of some of Islam's great treasures. And, of course, it's all incomparable, and it's about the busiest gallery. Next door, there's the amazing Anglo-Saxon and Celtic stuff, which is also yeah, pretty astonishing when you think of the Dark Ages, or pretty, pretty shining, some of those things. But the Islamic gallery, even though Islam is kind of the paradigm of that which makes everybody kind of anxious, is it safe to go in there? Islamic, oh my God. Where is that adjective normally used in the media 99 times out of 100 or 100 times out of 100? It's attached to something scary. But then they go in and they go in because it is the luminous heart of the museum. The ancient Egyptian stuff is fun and children look at the mummies and the spill of that. Uh, the Elgin marbles, there's some people in there, but all right. Yes, lumps of the Parthenon, um, all right. More uh, a kind of status experience to look at those, um, like going to a particularly difficult experimental modern opera. Something to talk about at a dinner party in Islington, but after two hours of serialist evocations of sonic chaos, the kind of enjoyment factor might diminish, but hey, it's something to talk about. I went to the new Philip Glass opera. Oh yeah, I had got really good reviews, didn't it? It's, it's all about you know, it's like birdsong, you just produce this chatter that demonstrates your place in the social matrix, but um, intrinsically it may not uh, do much for you. But uh, when you go to those Islamic galleries, okay, so the world's great city has its great museum, and at the centre of the great museum there's these uh, galleries, and there you see the Qur'ans and the carpets and the manuscripts and the... Uh, glassware and everybody is crowding. You have to wait to get uh, to see some of the stuff because it's so busy. 
that's an interesting question. What is it about the artifacts of our civilization, which presumably body forth the worldview and the spiritual states of the craftsmen who are producing that stuff that everybody nowadays in 21st century individualistic mammon land finds so delightful? An interesting question, even though it's Islamic. Isn't that like Islamist? Um, we're brought up to have certain reflexes about that, but people can't get enough of that. But what you don't see there, and this is perhaps the most interesting thing in the Bukhari galleries, is many Muslims. That's really also an interesting cultural statement. Lots of Japanese and Chinese, and American tourists and Europeans and Dutch and English kind of lapping up all of this stuff and looking at the Qurans and the woodwork and the fritware and the Mamluk glass and it's, it's all astounding. Mm. But even though one in seven Londoners is a Muslim, maybe one in a hundred visitors to the Bukhari gallery is Muslim and they don't always seem to be the most religious ones. So that's a kind of interesting reflection on our state. Where do we really belong? Are we actually more comfortable in Starbucks or watching Wimbledon or doing some sort of purely Western thing. And when we see the extraordinary cultural uh, summit achieved by the ancestors of most Muslims in London, we're kind of um, a bit uncomfortable. The world's greatest fritware, fritware, is that Islamic brother? What's fritware? Is this haram? We really don't know, even though your average kind of chattering classes, Islington person, probably has some in his home and he can tell you the difference about the, or Islamic carpets on his floor, but we aren't in that space. That's an interesting uh, condemnation, I guess, that we complain so much about hostility to the East and to our heritage, um, but we're not really inhabiting our heritage and we don't know it, and we, don't, we don't seem to be interested. And it's the same at the Victoria and Albert Museum where they have some equivalently amazing things. You don't see many London Muslims there. Even the kind of high-flying city types who maybe rub shoulders with people who do go to galleries, but no, it's not, not what we do. So we begin with this interesting sense of uh, a consensual divorce. That probably the, if the default demography of London Muslims is probably 60% of cases subcontinental, and you could say that the deep culture of Islam in the subcontinent may be the greatest summit of human civilization. How do you measure these things in terms of the music, the food, the textiles, the architecture? You know, Taj Mahal is the world's number one tourist destination. That culture, their ancestral culture, certainly beats anything that uh, the British did in India, for heaven's sake, no, no comparison at all. But the new generation do not inhabit that, don't respond to it, find it all a bit kind of um, disquieting. They leave it to the white folks to get, have Islamic art in their hands. Whatever it is, odd. That's an interesting circumstance, um, that despite the religiosity of much of subcontinental London Islam, there doesn't seem to be much interest in pride in that staggering North Indian, Mughal, Khaljid, whatever it is, heritage. They just don't much respond to it or want to know much about it. Talk to the young people and they can't name any of those rulers and it's just some kind of 
odd Arabian Nights exotic thing that nobody ever tells them about because their culture is just the modern culture of the biryani, the khatam, the aunties, that world. But the greatness of that civilization, which could be a very good way of vindicating their culture, is something that they choose not to know about or they've never been exposed to it. One great way of dealing with Islamophobia is pointing out the popularity of Islamic art. Um, but because it's not popular amongst ourselves, that becomes a slightly problematic argument. We don't respond to it much now. Um, an oddity. I remember once walking with my late father through Bain al Qasrain Street in uh, Cairo. Cairo has the world's highest density of medieval monuments. Astonishing. And there on all sides are these staggering sort of uh, Mamluk cathedral scale miracles. And he's blown away. And then he says, where did these people go? This is amazing. Where did, where did they all go? Good question. They're not doing those things in Egypt any longer or anything like. They build a few shopping malls maybe and hotels for tourists, but that, no. Even when they build a mosque, it's not that. It's a kind of embarrassed uh, pastiche with a few half-remembered uh, stereotypical motifs. They don't relate to that. So that's uh, an interesting, if rather dispiriting, realization. The religion goes on, the civilization is defunct. The elites, particularly in Muslim lands, are not in any way in continuity with the worldview and the cultural forms of uh, the historic elites. Sometimes the working classes are in continuity <coughs> with the values that you might have seen 500 years ago in Cairo, Lucknow, or wherever, but the elites, no. <coughs> Neither do they particularly wish to re-engage with that stuff, which is a shame, because they need um, a PR break um, but they're not really going to use that stuff because it no longer speaks to them. So that's one uh, rather sobering realisation about the precarity, the oddness of our situation, that we no longer represent a civilization, really. Uh, but there's lots of piety around. But generally our lives tend to be, well, we pray and we fast and we have a kind of Asian-style, colourful tinsely, nikah, but basically the substance of our lives is, is a kind of Western thing. Uh, and that uh, dissonance produces many of the discomforts in the contemporary Muslim soul. And on the modern, the real side of it, this uh, aspirational model of leadership is actually <coughs> quite corrosive to the soul because it's not natural for the believer to get to the top by trampling others underfoot and by boasting about his or her real or imagined uh, skills. So we uh, recognize this, but then we also recognize that the elites and those Muslim diasporas in the West that should be proud of their ancestors, but in practice don't seem interested at all, um, have been dislocated colonial experiences, post-colonial uh, sort of, uh, inferiority complexes in favour of a narrative 
uh, that seemed, certainly the 19th, early 20th century, to be absolutely insuperable. The traditional Munshi goes to the new railway station in Lucknow for the first time, and there is this enormous black dragon of a steam engine, and he feels, oh, we'll never compete with this civilization. And that complex begins, uh, and the uh, bifurcation between uh, religion and civilization becomes a kind of sting in the soul of very many, perhaps most Muslims, very few people are serenely and uncomplicatedly just a part of the narrative of Muslim civilization any longer. There are all kind of discontinuities and compromises and tensions that uh, agitate people's souls inevitably, cognitive dissonance. So that was, uh, the white man has this enormous steaming machine. I've just got my old horse at home, we're, we're, we're done for. Uh, that narrative of progress with its, shall we say, fatalism, in other words, this is inevitable, uh, a social Darwinism, just as Darwin said that we begin with primordial sludge and then we produce, well, people like himself wearing a top hat and playing bridge, obviously the climax of a billion years, who could deny that? This idea of, despite the meaninglessness of stuff and the fact that stuff is taken to be all that exists, there is this ordering principle, becomes a kind of surrogate religion. So people think, well, eschatology, heaven and hell, that's difficult, but hey, things are getting better. This quasi-religious miracle of order emerging from natural chaos is really exciting, and we're going to base our music and our art and our sense of ourselves, our optimism on this, the strange collaboration of atheism and materialism on the one hand with a kind of optimism about the human future uh, is an interesting sign of our times and sometimes accelerated when 20th century man wanted to step on the gas he tended to go for something like Nazism or communism which were just attempts to speed up natural selection and make us better at high speed didn't really work too well but we still believe in the underlying teleology of getting better, progressism, what René Guénon calls um, the fatalism of progress. You can't do anything about it. Things just are going to get better and go along with it. And perhaps retain a few fragmentary nice things from your grandmother's pieties, but basically it, the future is, uh, is, is the reality. So that was the counter-narrative to the Islamic civilizational narrative really until very, very, very recently. And even a generation ago, with people like Francis Fukuyama, the idea of the end of history, the West has actually cracked it. We understand uh, the meaning of life, life, universe, and everything, and things are going to get better. Liberal democracy, science, secularism will prevail everywhere. <coughs> As the Iron Curtain came down, that seemed to be inexorable, but now they tend to look a little bit uh, uh, doubtful about all of this. And this is what makes being Muslim in our time particularly intriguing, if not particularly comfortable. <coughs> so in the 19th century, the old narrative of the Mughals and the Ottomans, the great climaxes of everything, collapsing and people starting to think, well, the white man has better cannons and representative government and human rights and we're feeling really 
put upon by all of this, and we have to redefine Islam as we invented human rights, or the Quran very scientific and that kind of apologetic uh, manipulation which doesn't really convince anybody, um, or the sort of mad fundamentalist Luddite reaction which is causing the, the complete systemic implosion of an increasing number of Muslim societies and, and countries now. Instead of that, we now have the other narrative, the narrative that said that it had the answers, itself imploding, not just because of the philosophical collapse of the, of the Enlightenment idea of how to get ethics into the, the postmodern relativization of everything, which very simply, very easily becomes a kind of nihilism or uh, relativism. Uh, but because of what science, which is the kind of the dominant jewel in the crown of the Western alternative to the sacred paradigms, um, is now presenting. So yesterday, you might have seen possibly on the BBC, uh, Michelle Hussein, who comes to CMC sometimes, she's a kind of CMC supporter, a serious person, interviewing James Lovelock. That's an interesting encounter, not just because he's like five times older than her, he's having his... Uh, 100th birthday this year, but still really coherent. You know, you wouldn't want to cross mental swords with him on a dark night. He's a very bright man. He's the one who, a couple of generations ago, came up with this Gaia hypothesis, which is popular in some sort of sustainability green circles, which is there's scientific reasons for regarding us as part of a planetary organism. A lot of people thought this was a kind of interesting idea, even though it's kind of obvious that the ecosystem is one unitary thing, but it was a helpful breakthrough at the time when people still thought of human beings as somehow categorically exceptional. Uh, and he's been a leading campaigner for nuclear energy uh, and uh, for what he calls rational displacement. It's worth thinking about if you have relatives in a Muslim country. Global warming is going to hit the Muslim world much harder than it will uh, these frozen latitudes. And he says it's not going to be stopped by technology or by anything, and therefore we need to adopt what he calls a process of rational displacement. Evacuate countries like Bangladesh and find other places uh, to put all of those people because you can't save those low-lying places. New Orleans, don't bother. Uh, Pakistan is going to be destroyed by global warming because the Himalayan ice cap is coming to an end. It'll be uninhabitable. 20, 30 years, don't even think about science coming up with a solution. These places are toast. So, uh, rather dismal, but he sees things very much as a futurist. With uh, sufficient international cooperation, we can relocate those populations. The countries will be gone, but the populations will be, I don't know, somewhere near... Omsk in Siberia, where they can grow oranges. This is the kind of uh, prospect that he is uh, holding out. Um, the optimism of some scientists is quite uh, uh, encouraging, perhaps. In any case, what he was talking about with Michelle Hussein yesterday, and she was kind of a little bit uh, gobsmacked by this, is artificial intelligence. He says the real solution to the wipeout of Homo sapiens by climate change, which he sees as inevitable, is going to be that there's nothing special about us. We're just one species amongst 10 million. We'll come to an end. But what's important is consciousness. Uh, that's the only thing that's interesting about us. 
and we're going to produce consciousness through artificial intelligence that he says will be 10,000 times as quick as the, the pathetic meat machine that is the human brain. And this new cybernetic consciousness, which will replace ourselves, will go on forever because it won't be particularly dependent on any biological uh, infrastructure. So at the age of 100, he's still uh, looking to the future, and Michel was kind of nodding, not wishing to be too impolite. But of course, it's a, a shockingly outrageous idea. Uh, but my point is that the old sort of Victorian Herbert Spencer idea of social Darwinism and progress, instead of these funny little sacred traditions and your mogul design and your meditative music, your contemplative civilization, get on board this train which is going to the real paradise, which is the great future land and milk, of milk and honey, which science and reason and liberal democracy are opening up to a hitherto benighted human race. No longer the case. Now, if the science itself is saying, well, actually, uh, we've uh, erased our future, but something else is going to take over, so it doesn't really matter. There's nothing special about us anyway. Uh, then that whole narrative of progress <coughs> is no longer the irresistible seductress that it was for Indians and Egyptians 100 years ago, but is looking as if it's run into the buffers and is far more threatening and inhuman than anything that uh, even the most aberrant traditional sacred civilization dreamt up. It is uh, genuinely biocidal, threatening not just ourselves, but most other life forms. Um, outrageous. What Lovelock said was outrageous. So that's the kind of dialogue that we're having now, not the dialogue that, say, uh, Jamaladin Avrani had a hundred years ago with Renan at the Collège de France, where it was la mission civilatrice, enlightenment, steam engines, the national republic, uh, the imperial vision of uplifting the colonies against Jamaladin Avrani trying to justify Islamic civilization and not really making a very good fist of it. Now the dialogue is different. The dialogue is now between the completely crazy futurist uh, with his predictions of a utopia, but not for us. And on the other hand, Michelle Hussein with her Islamic thing, which is real, and her work at the BBC and her desire for career pro progression, which is entirely legitimate, she's good at her job. And that conversation is, is very different to the conversation we were having 100 years ago. It, it is more disquieting. And from the materialistic point of view, it's not nearly so triumphalistic. So my point is the simple one, which is that we find ourselves in a new situation. It's not just tradition and modernity, progress and conservatism. It is a model of life that, for all of its failings, produced sustainable civilizations that believed in a higher reality and produced a staggering cornucopia of art, music, and other things that indicate the profound serenity and happiness of the souls that generated those artifacts against a global catastrophe, climate emergency, not to mention all of the other you know, potential threats um, that science represents. You should all go and watch 
Dr. Strangelove, which is Kubrick's greatest film, which is this kind of prophetic vision of human cleverness outsmarting uh, uh, human wisdom. If you don't know the story, it's uh, the head of an American nuclear bomber airbase who decides uh, that uh, the virility of the American man is being compromised by the addition of fluoride to drinking water. And because of this evil conspiracy, he is going to bring down the establishment by launching his nuclear bombers against Russia. They're going to launch a counter-strike. The whole world will go up. But there won't be any more fluoride in our water, and the virility of the American man is going to be restored. It's kind of amusing, uh, but it also is indicative of the kind of wonky paranoia uh, that exists, particularly on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, as its uh, finger drifts somewhere egotistically near uh, the red button. Uh, it's quite a prophetic, although it's a black comedy, really. We should all watch it as an example of a secular critique of, uh, of the catastrophic risks uh, that modernity and science can present to us. So, so the point is, the old progress and science and reason and human happiness against reaction, religion, sexism, conservatism, the family, uh, primitivism, that dialectic isn't really in place any longer and things are a lot more complex. Uh, which means that religiosity and the Islamic option is about uh, not a kind of nostalgic retreat into grandma's pieties, but in the real world of work or whatever, you go along with uh, the, the world view of the dominant civilization that has to involve us in a, uh, a more radical and existential dissidence. Not the kind of blow yourself up in the street, mad al-Qaeda uh, aberration, but something rooted in the uh, spiritual depths of our civilization rather than just in our capacity to get really angry. So Imam al-Ghazali comes in, and as I said, I don't want to go through the biodata. It's um, pleasantly familiar. But uh, the, the key uh, tension in his life, of course, is... Uh, the mind and the heart. Even when he was a teenager in uh, Central Asia, uh, during the day he would attend the majlis of uh, Imam al-Haramain al-Juwaini, the greatest philosophical theologian uh, in the world at the time, with the crack students of the age who'd come to sit at his feet from everywhere. And it was the forms of the syllogism, the construction of arguments, uh, analogy, very refined, uh, elaborate mental gymnastics, which have their place in our civilization. We like to construct good arguments. We've always emphasized logic. And then the classes were over by the Zohar prayer, and he'd get on his donkey or his mule and trot off to the suburbs of the city, uh, in order to sit with a Sufi, Abu Ali al-Farmadi, where a different uh, sort of journey was being celebrated. Not the way of the mind, but the way of the heart. Not the way of logic chopping and demonstration, apodeictic proofs, but instead the affective 
possibly that which is closer to what makes us most paradigmatically human. Taught in a rose garden. This is Persia, after all. It's mostly poetry. It's ecstatic. People are sitting in a circle, and as it were, the metaphorical flagons of love are being passed around. You don't get that kind of intoxication in a logic class. Um, it's dry, and it has to be dry. You have to exclude your humanity and your emotions from the rigorous intellectual construction of, of arguments in law and in uh, <coughs> metaphysics. But in Pharma, this gathering, it's the Sufi thing, <coughs> and the Persian Sufi thing, which is <coughs> the climax of that uh, civilization, certainly in terms of its literature. Uh, and that bifurcation was, of course, on everybody's mind uh, and leads to his famous crisis. Am I sincere? Why do I enjoy sitting in front of the best students in the Islamic world? Why am I accepting the patronage of Nizam al-Mulk, the most powerful man in the world, probably? Um, why am I hobnobbing, walking the corridors of power, taking the state's uh, dinars, um, uh, when, quite possibly, I'm just digging my own spiritual and moral grave. I really enjoy my professorial chair and the odium academicum that goes with it. And famously, in the middle of a lecture, he's kind of thunderstruck by this, experiences what we would probably call a breakdown and just leaves to the uh, consternation of his students who want him to finish the argument. But... Uh, he leaves uh, and he goes, uh, well, not back to the Rose Garden, but to God's Rose Garden, the wider world, uh, which is where the believer finds his spiritual nourishment, because this is in the Qur'an. The Qur'an tells us that faith is gifted by heaven to those who humbly open their hearts to the signs of, of God in the natural world and in human beings. That's the Quran's argument. Argument from design, but not really philosophical, but rather existential. Shaking us and saying, leave aside all of your clever syllogisms, look at all of this. Does it look as if it just emerged from some primordial nothing? Not very likely, is it? That's a kind of argument that's deeper than arguments. It, it appeals to that which is most commonsensical and real about human beings. <coughs> Uh, and incidentally, it's another thing for us to think about in our world, <coughs> part of whose ethos has been human mastery of nature. We want to control nature. We queue up to get to the top of Mount Everest at vast expense and personal risk. <coughs> Why should we want to do that? Because we want to stand on top of the world, and this makes us feel that we've dominated nature and part of our Civilization has said that's how we will achieve happiness because nature is threatening. It's got tigers in it. And, uh, <coughs> but there is, <coughs> of course, in nature, in its threateningness as well as in its sort of soft rabbit aspects, uh, a lesson for the soul. <coughs> uh, during Ramadan, I was in the Malay world and somebody in this gathering said, look what I saw when I was driving. He had his phone. He'd been sitting behind the 
dashboard in the car and the car stopped and there was a tiger in front of his car. And the tiger had her cubs by the side of the road and people had stopped just to look at this thing. And what was interesting is you could immediately see the kind of, uh, what he said, the, the majesty of this animal and its complete existential indifference to our own egotistic cleverness, the, the, the majesty of it just being a tiger and challenging us and making us realise our smallness. It was a sacred moment and this is what the Qur'an is telling us, that even in something that could eat you, there is something that is going to spiritually bring you to life. And so the believers have always enjoyed nature, Muslims have always loved gardens, and we've always tried to bring the indicativity of nature into our homes and our sacred spaces. The mosque doesn't have pictures, but the mosque has uh, indications of the geometric indicativity of nature. Islamic decorative art, which is the essence really of our architectural civilization, is about stylized vegetal motifs, tessellations, arabesques, the exploration of the strange platonic mystery of symmetry and uh, geometry <coughs> brought to the surface. That's what our art does. It says, an infinitesimal distance behind the surface of things, which seem to be kind of messy, there is order, symmetry, perfection. There is a kind of platonic space where everything is ordered and geometry prevails, not just the snowflake, but the atom. And Muslim art has always sought to remind us of the orderliness of God's creation. Uh, and it, it's very effective. And that's one reason why people like to crowd out those galleries at the British uh, Museum, because on some level they're being told mm, there's something really interesting about the fact that creation is orderly rather than just you, what you'd expect from a world without an orderer, which is either nothingness, which is the only logical thing to expect, but some kind of radical, fractal chaos. But no, there is order, there are physical constants, there's the speed of light, there is gravity, there are triangles, there are eight-pointed stars, there is real order is part of the fabric of things. And that's what the Qur'an is saying, ayat li'ulil al-bab, Signs for people of lump, the deeper part of ourselves, which is activated through contemplation, not through cleverness. It's not really a function of IQ. It's a function of whether you can overcome the jumping thoughts and the distractions of the lower self and allow the lump, the real self, to ponder these things and to be nourished by them. So, another question in our contemporary reality, since that seems to be the, the puzzle that we set for ourselves today, is <clears throat> if modern man has ransacked nature and intimidated it and terrorised it so that probably that tiger has now been killed or something because it's on a public highway, if we are the terroristical enemies of just about every other species apart from those that we can enslave because we like chicken nuggets or something, if this is our, our function on the planet, <clears throat> not to be khulafa and stewards, but to be uh, sort of, uh, rapists and mass murderers, <clears throat> because the Qur'an says the other species are umamun amthalukum, nations like yourselves, which when you think about it, it's a pretty radical statement. 
the world of rabbits has its own integrity and its right to have a global distribution, just like the world of human beings. They have their own logic, their own consciousness, their own integrity, their own right to be here. They're not just there for us. They're, they're uh, autonomously as another way in which creation testifies to the majesty of its author. But we don't see that, so we just run them over on the A14 or maybe eat them or shoot them, whatever it is we do, but we, we can't just let them be because modern civilization doesn't see the point of letting anything be. Make money out of it, enjoy it, treat it as some kind of leisure activity, go hunting for elephants in Botswana, but just capitalize everything, what's its monetary value? And the consequences for the poor old vandalized natural world are something that even the most uh, sort of crazy atheistic scientists like uh, Lovelock have to acknowledge. But they just say, oh, we'll come to an end because of all this cleverness, but there'll be something even smarter, so let's be optimistic. Uh, it's a kind of uh, weird eschatology. So uh, the question is, if humanity treats nature as an enemy, rather than as just something that we are part of and are spiritually nourished by, how do we find our way to that contemplative tafakkur, which the Qur'an says is how you absorb faith? How do you get a natural belief if you're in Terminal 5 at Heathrow, for instance? Uh, maybe if you look out of the window, you can see beyond the smoking runway, there's a few trees out there. Otherwise, nature is decisively abolished. Even the food is kind of... God knows how many additives and things have been added. And part of the weirdness of the modern food industry is that the more they manipulate the food and the more they add to it, the cheaper it gets. It should be the other way around when you think about it. But this is the inversion that we're living. So how do you remember your Lord in these modern spaces that are the consequence of the radical ransacking and disenchantment of the world. Well, you do it through uh, the Quranic verse that says, We shall show them our signs on the horizons and in themselves. I was talking to the prison chaplains a few days ago. In prison, you really are detached from nature. You don't have a spouse, you don't have children. Maybe you can see a bird occasionally through the window in a high-security prison. That might not happen very often. You don't breathe fresh air. If you've been to a prison, you'll see how at least the white folks are whiter than ever before because you know, they just don't go outdoors. How can they uh, enjoy this Quranic uh, celebration, this feasting on the signs of nature? <coughs> An interesting question, pastorally, for them. I was putting it together. Ah, it's in other human beings. That is where the real sign is to be found. The inward universe is even more interesting than the outward universe. And this is the meaning of, and Imam Ghazali says this, it's one of the key points of his Ihya'ullum al-Din, al-Din Mu'amalat. There's a whole section on Mu'amalat, and he talks about the preference of being with others over being on one's own. Other people are a pain, aren't they? I mean, most of our grumbles are about other people and uh, what they say about us or what they've done to us, why not just be on your own? Like this new novel, 
Individutopia, which is doing quite well at the moment, which is about a future in which nobody ever talks to each other. In the shop, in the bank, whatever, everybody is just an individual on their phones. There's no human to amol. Isn't that better? Other people are just a pain, no? Well, in, the, in Imam al-Ghazali's vision, it is nature, and of course he spends 10 years in the wilderness, uh, that restores our contemplative functionality, but also the inward horizon. So there's the outward horizon, the few beech trees that you can see the other side of the runway at Heathrow, uh, but the inward horizon, which by definition is what you are and you can't get away from it. So inwardly, there is a thicker, just as outwardly there is thicker, but also inwardly, in our transaction with others, we intuit transcendence. And this is really important in our civilization, which emphasizes sohba and engagement with others. What is interesting about the external world, well, I guess mountains and trees and those things are pretty interesting. But what is really interesting is the existence of other uh, little points of light, other consciousnesses, other phenomena, miracles, arwah, that also have self-awareness and to which you have moral obligations. That's why the ethical is so inextricable from the spiritual in Islam, because the whole process of suluk, Imam Ghazali makes this very clear, is about recognizing your own inward weaknesses and failings and needs by engaging with the mirror of the heart of somebody else. And this is the famous hadith, the believer is the mirror to the believer, mir'atul mu'min. That when you are with other people, you are challenged and brought out of yourself far more reliably than if you're just on your own or looking in a mirror or taking a selfie, which is what we uh, nowadays seem to do, which is very characteristically modern sort of narcissism. Uh, Centre of Cambridge yesterday. <coughs> Everybody's taking photographs. I would say 90% of them are taking photographs of themselves. Because it's the me generation and the self is the center of our concerns. But actually, the other is more interesting. And Imam al-Ghazali puts all of those chapters in the Ihya, the adab of traveling. That sounds like a rather kind of pedestrian thing, but a whole book on it. The adab of eating, really. This is the greatest spiritual text of the greatest monotheistic civilization. He's got a whole chapter just on eating. Marriage, uh, KESP, what we call business ethics, I guess. These are important, not just because God is testing us to see whether we follow the rules when we're with annoying other people, but because in the human intuition of the inalienable integrity of the other's spirit, there is a reminder of the unseen world. This is important in Ghazali, Sufi, Sufism, and generally in Tasawwuf. There are reminders in the geometry of nature, and that can be a philosophical argument. It's also a spiritual nourishment. But the great sign of transcendence in the world is that to which the angels bow down. Human beings. Seems improbable. 
You created him of clay, but the angels bow down to Bani Adam or to that which is within us. It's the, the Ruh. And Imam Ghazali says that's what it's all about, but he's not going to talk about it because it's something that cannot be encapsulated in the net of words. But really the whole of the Ihya is moving towards a position in which we have sufficient self-awareness, mindfulness, you might say nowadays, and sufficient compliance with the outward forms of the prophetic perfection for the contemplative mechanisms within ourselves to operate properly and for us to see transcendence in and through and with other people. Yadullahi ma'al jama'ah. God's hand is with the congregation and this is a collectivist movement. The Holy Prophet was not a hermit. He comes down from the mountain, comes down from the Mi'raj and his greatness is with his people. Not because that's a kind of necessary uh, nuisance, but because it's in the intuition of the miracle of the other consciousness that you most reliably grasp transcendence. Beauty of the world, beauty of other people, that's all uh, abundantly celebrated in Ghazali's and subsequent Sufi tradition, the idea of the shahid, the beautiful human being who bears witness to the beauty of his or her creator, for sure. So in the airport, you can look at babies and so forth. That's a very Islamic thing to do because the, the miracle of the beauty and the purity of the young is certainly a shahid. But the engagement with the proximity with the human other, which is only ever possible if the ego is mastered, because the ego is the veil that shuts you off from seeing the integrity and the need of the human other. Uh, really to see the miracle of somebody else's existence, to be close to that person, your teacher, your grandfather, your child, your lover, your colleague, your fellow tariqa member, whatever it might be, and thereby really to experience the perfume of transcendence in your quite ordinary human activities, the ego has to go away. Because it just gets in the way. It is the rust over the heart, as the Qur'an and the Hadith puts it. That's what it does. The heart is the eye which perceives and that which is a kind of cataract over its surface is our egotistic interest in doing our own thing. And when we engage with somebody else, the ego is activated, the spirit is activated. And he talks about this in the Kitab al-Mahabba. Two, two parts of us are engaged naturally when we meet another human being. When we meet another element of creation, a dog or something, certain reflexes are triggered. But when we meet another human being, there's certain instinctive human uh, consciousnesses which come to the surface. Attraction might be one of them. Fight or flight might be another. These are obvious things, but there is also a spiritual osmosis, and that's twofold. Firstly, the ego thinks, is this person a threat? Am I better than this person? Can I emerge from this encounter with my status intact? Is he earning more than me? Blah, blah, blah. All of those things which are normal, part of our natural humanity. It's the... Uh, uh, the, the Darwinian aspect within us, but also the Ruh, which is interested because of its nature in seeing the beauty and the integrity of the other. Uh, and that's the difference 
between the profane regard and the sacred regard, the eye of the heart, uh, is what brings us uh, the happiness, which Imam Ghazali says is, is the path of sa'ada. To the extent that you're happy in this world, spiritually happy, the abode of sa'ada, happiness, is necessarily yours in the next world, because it's what you've kind of established as your priority. So the nafs wants to see the faults in others and all of the seven deadly sins and vices and pride and envy and all of that are activated and triggered by that whenever we meet another human being, we feel insecure and all of that stuff which we often spend most of our lives um, trapped by and made stressed by. But the ruh, to the extent that it can still see anything at all, is looking to see the other ruh and to see the beauty, because the ruh is from the alam al-arwah, from the divine realm, and its natural habitat is beauty. It's in a space where there is only beauty. And its natural gravitation in this world is to see other tokens of beauty. So Imam Ghazali in the Kitab Sharh Haja'ib al-Qalb, which is maybe the heart of the, the Ihya, he calls it the exposition of the wonders of the heart, uh, asks us how we would be if uh, that was our automatic way of dealing with human transactions. If in all of these mu'amalat we engage with another human being, somebody who's reading my passport or somebody who stops me for speeding or whatever other profane thing it might be. And instead of the ego being activated, the ruh is activated and there's another miracle of a ruh to which the angels bow down, etc. with me at the day of alastubi rabbikum. Interesting. In other words, an experience of solidarity and of beauty and of intersubjectivity uh, which is necessarily the case, even if that person is poking you in the eye. That person still has a ruh somewhere, and there's always spiritual interest in that situation, whether it's jamal or jalal. And the nourishment that we would experience, and this is what I was saying in, to, to the chaplains, even in a prison situation where the external horizon signs are really abolished, um, but the human engagement, the, the mu'amala, engagement between souls is still something that the believer is interested in. And if you s spend time with people who are spiritually trained and refined, you will notice how much they seem to enjoy learning about human beings. They really smile when a new person joins their majlis and they want to know who they are. What is this person really about? And you ask them questions about job and children and so forth, and these are the kind of standard ritual uh, formulas, particularly in Eastern cultures that are exchanged, but it's not really about that. It's, let me see what this person is and what God means by this unique human being and how I can be nourished spiritually. How this person can contribute to the majlis's pouring out of the wine of divine recollection, because that's the only thing worth drinking. And this uh, actually is the way to read the Ihya, and you get a sense of what happened to Imam al-Ghazali on those 10 years, many of which were spent, it seems, kind of in a state of seclusion, that he understands uh, that we are ourselves when we are in accordance with our fitrah, which is naturally God-inhaling, 
nourished uh, human beings. We're not designed to be rocks or stones. We're praisers. Uh, uh, Ibad, slaves of God, is what we should be and what makes us most healthy, spiritually, even physically. It's just good for us. It's our natural way. It's our the, uh, the air, the mixture of gases in the air that we are designed to breathe, unlike the uh, unpleasant uh, mixture that modernity gives us. It's, uh, it's, it's right for us. Uh, and that in this environment, uh, life is endlessly interesting because of these mu'amalat, that you can turn your evening in a dusty caravansarai with a bunch of merchants from who knows where and their noisy camels, whatever that experience is, you can turn it into an integrated part of your uh, experience of God, not just your search for God through keeping moral boundaries and courtesy, but your experience of God because human beings are uh, yet are signs stronger than anything else in the, the physical world. And this goes for all of the other Mu'amalat, uh, all of the other kinds of transaction that he indicates that, uh, uh, and it happens of course in relationships particularly. Nowadays relationships uh, not working particularly well even though it should really be the easiest thing for us. The male and the female naturally belong together, there is a kind of magnetism there that should make that the easiest thing, but often it's one of the most hard things, usually because the ego is activated. Does she look like this? Does he have this job? Will he buy me a car? It's all about what can I get out of this rather than what is really interesting, which is seeing the miracle of another soul with its needs that's more interesting than the other stuff. Nafs is an animalistic thing ultimately and is no more interesting than just watching a dog or a cat. It's, it gets uh, very predictable after a while, but the ruh, yeah, is, of course, reflecting eternity. Uh, so he says that uh, we need to shift our optic and in our engagement with others, including engagement with, with spouses, uh, figure out uh, what that person really is and enjoying the miracle of closeness to another sort of paradox of consciousness, which is the deepest mystery in the uh, physical world. And uh, Imam Zabidi, who has the great commentary on the Ihya, uh, talks about this, where he talks about the, the nikah and the rules of nikah and uh, what, what is really going on in this, this mystery. Uh, and it's also the case, I think, that Imam Ghazali, in his understanding of the fiqh, and there are quite a lot of fiqh things in the Ihya, uh, insists that you can only really understand the Sharia or begin to understand it when you see it as a form of life which is there to represent uh, human beings who try to be egoless and are trying to look for ways of improving things and others rather than looking at the world as the kind of endless supermarket from which they can take things for themselves. You can't understand the Sharia if you're in a frame that says, well, what about, what about me? It is a way of service, it is a way of sacrifice, and sometimes privileges are granted, but those privileges are there in order to convey certain onerous responsibilities. And uh, nothing really in 
the sacred law of Islam can be understood outside that. And Henry Bayman in his book, The Secret of Islam, talks a lot about this. That the Sharia is just there as an expression of God's love for human beings. Through the Holy Prophet, every one of these rulings is based on the divine compassion and love. Uh, but to understand that, we have to get into the space that uh, Allah wishes us to be in, which is the space of finding our true happiness through service and the noticing of other people and their needs. If we treat them as just more phenomena out there that we observe with our senses, you're not going to figure out the way the Sharia is at all. It's not designed to be that, it's not designed to be judged like that. And uh, that's a very important aspect of the Ghazalian perspective. So we're beginning to see that the story that the Imam sort of enacts for us, and there's something quite iconic about it, turning away from exoteric learning in favour of uh, contemplative knowledge and then a return to the exoteric armed with the awareness that it's only the esoteric that gives the outward meaning uh, is really the key uh, contribution of his life and of course so many other things. He is uh, a warrior he is passionate for truth in a prophetic kind of way. He writes a book in which he corrects the Christians on the basis of the text of the New Testament. He writes a book which corrects the philosophy of Ibn Sina based on the philosophy of Ibn Sina. He writes books that correct the Ismailis and all of these other paths to knowledge <coughs> that he thinks are not worthy of human beings. Uh, all of this is done through the spirit of... Uh, of compassion and uh, towards the end of his greatest work which is the Ihya which is also a kind of polemical work and the target of this book is not the Ismailis or the philosophers or whoever um, the target of this book is Muslims who underestimate uh, what Islam is giving them by just going through the motions as if Islam is just a list of 10,000 sort of disconnected, sometimes difficult, sometimes familiar things which we do in order to get treats in the next life. Well, there is a next life in God's mercy and that is an important part of <coughs> um, the Ihya and the way in which he incentivizes us, but it's very much uh, about how we live an anticipation of the Dara Sa'ada, the paradisal world of happiness in this world. Hmm. How can there be a garden in our hearts, in our relationships, in our tariqas, in our circles of knowledge, in our government even? How can we make things come to life so that there is uh, verdure in these uh, earthly transactions? And, of course, the duty to do that, to plant these sort of gardens, as it were, to create an easy indicativity of the Creator's presence in apparently profane things in this world is something that continues even today. And this is one of the meanings of the hadith that says, if the hour comes upon you when you are planting a tree, finish planting it. Planting of trees is an important thing in the sunnah and if you look at the idea of the tree in the sort of dictionary of hadith, you'll see there's a lot about trees in Islam. But the point of this hadith is that even at the end of time, you continue to work for the greening and the repristination of 
creation because it's just what human beings should do. It's a trigger for environmental action against global warming, I guess. You have to do this thing. Planting trees is actually much more effective than any uh, more spiffy scientific high-tech remedy for climate change uh, because uh, trees capture so much carbon. And this is prophetically mandated in the end times. But that's an indication of the larger pursuit that the believer has to have, that the remembrance of God creates a garden of paradise. Helaquddikr, according to the famous hadith, are rawdatun min riyadil jannah. The circles of remembrance of God are gardens of the gardens of paradise. In the place where God is remembered, even if his name is not spoken, but where people are remembering God through a due courteous engagement with each other, and are in tune with their hearts and their inner nature. That's a garden of paradise. That's a, a tiny anticipation, a waft from the fragrance of the, of the firdaus. And this is part of the joy of the believer and the sweetness that the believer should find uh, when present with other people who have this higher aspiration. So that essentially, and I could talk about Imam Ghazali for a very long time, is what I believe to be the deeper message of the Ihya, and this is a kind of leadership that is about the renewal of the whole of the religion through a recapturing of its holistic, sort of ambitious, universal purport. It's not just about what you do in the mosque, and it's not really relevant to what you do in other aspects of your life. You'll be uncomfortable and stressed if that's your reality. Instead, it is uh, the determination of a sacred purpose behind everything which is ethical, which is for the human other, which is about mu'amalat, which is living in compliance with the prophetic boundaries which show the best form of, of human dignity and human flourishing, and is also based on the activation, the liberation of the ruh, the spirit, because the nafs, by its nature, looks for ugly things, and the ruh, by its nature, wishes to see what's beautiful. And the modern world is increasingly generating a mass culture which makes money for an oligarchy from the lower self's desire to look at ugly things and to look at manifestations of the ugliest, most impure, uh, most perverse, most private aspects of human beings. Um, the nafs naturally wishes to see stuff like that. And increasingly, that's what the uh, entertainment industry, the fashion industry, so much of our culture is about lyrics of so many popular songs. Uh, because it's easy, and the lower self finds it sweet. But the higher self, the ruh, looking for archetypes, looking for order, looking for contemplation, is actually the self that we should inhabit if we're going to find sa'ada. So the tawbah is turning away from that which makes us miserable and distracted in a zillion different directions because there's no unifying principle to appetite and which turns us back to the one, the true source of beauty and love. As Imam Ghazali says in the book of Mahabba, I'm going to do so much reading today but I haven't even started, uh, everything that is loved in the world is loved because it's a kind of metaphor for the divine beauty and therefore it is a sacred thing. Even if you love your cat, um, there's a, an aspect there of love for that aspect of whatever it is about cattishness or what the cat does, which ultimately speaks of its divine 
source at maybe a zillionth of a percentage point of the real thing, but it's still there. So we need to turn away from the ego, which wants to dislike and to be envious and to be superior, and to turn towards the spirit, which is about love and which is about beauty. As he says, love, longing, intimacy and contentment, and mahabba, wa shawq, wa uns, wa rida. If we have some share of those four things, we'll get some sense of what the imam achieved or was given during those ten years of his uh, peregrination and his return to human beings and to society, just as the Holy Prophet, alayhi salam, came back uh, from the mountain and came back from the Mi'raj, because <coughs> it is with human beings that we find not just our greatest challenges, but also potentially our, our greatest uh, consolation and our paths to God. So that's maybe 1% of what Imam Ghazali is saying in his absolutely gigantic and colossal, almost miraculous output of books that, that changed, that were game changers for the Ummah. Uh, a leader? Yes, but somebody who specifically renounced uh, leadership in the academic world where egos tend to be more tender and big than in most other areas, and it was painful for him. Uh, but he specifically renounced that, and by saying no to the leadership of Nafs, by tearing up his CV, he became de facto a leader under God, and he was given this tawfiq that the hadith indicates. And if Imam Ghazali is not Hujjat al-Islam, then I don't know who is. And he has led countless souls from ego to ruh, from ignorance to truth, from jahiliyyah to Islam, and that uh, the power of that transformation continues to spread out in the wider Ummah. So uh, I wanted to finish with Imam Ghazali partly because he, as it were, encompasses uh, so many other ways of having a human story, uh, a public human story. Uh, and of course, he is our Mujaddid and Hujjat uh, al-Islam, radiallahu anhu wa arda. So uh, it's the end of this year's courses. Thank you for your patience for staying with us, inshallah, there has been benefit just by rehearsing the stories of the, the great souls that the prophetic uh, moment made possible in, in this world, and inshallah, there will be many more to come, and may Allah, inshallah, grant us uh, peace, uh, serenity with our families, with our neighbours, with the world in these uh, troubling times in the summer months and in the future, inshallah. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.